I, I made some comments about putting leavening out before the feast. Oh, a couple, three Bible, whenever it was on the New Moon Bible study, and how sometimes we go to great lengths to get that done and spend, you know, weeks sometimes people deleavening. And uh, I don't know where righteousness ends and Pharisaism begins. But I wonder sometimes if we work nearly so hard after the Passover to put sin actually out of our lives as we do to put crumbs out of our houses. Uh, which do we devote the most time and energy and, and strength and uh, effort to? Uh, if, if anything, it ought to be heavily loaded on the six days after Passover of putting sin out. Of course... Uh, the biggest move toward putting sin out, of course, is Christ's Passover, which forgives sin. And that puts out a whole load right there, but we continue the process of getting rid of things. Uh, just a matter of emphasis, I think. If I look back over the decades, it seems to me that people spend an awful lot of time and energy getting physical, puffed up things out. And they talk about it a lot, but you don't hear them too much talking about putting sin out of their lives. Maybe, maybe we're a little embarrassed to bring that up. You don't, you don't go around and tell, you know what I got rid of today? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we're quite prepared for that, and I don't know that we need to go there. I'm not saying that, but uh, I hope we're putting the same kind of effort into our, our thought processes and our minds and, and everything uh, of the real sin as opposed to the symbol itself. Well, last night we did uh, Isaiah 59, and uh, I think I'm going to continue on in 60 uh, tonight. Um, I do believe there's a transition here from the work of the end time to the actual resurrection, uh, Christ coming back and claiming His bride. And it helps explain some things a great deal about the Gentiles coming uh, that were hard to fit into Zion and Jerusalem in a place of safety and so on any other way. So let's examine it a little bit in the context and see what kind of language God uses here. Because, after all, what physical work and or spiritual work we do here at the end time uh, is important to God's plan, but nothing gets ahead of or more important than what we're here for in the first place, and that's to be part of the kingdom of God forevermore. That's what it's all aimed at for us and for the rest of the world. It's just that there are some preliminary preparations that need to be made that we've been reading about in chapter 40 up until uh, 60 here. But it has to culminate in that which is permanent and eternal, not just temporary. Uh, what did Christ say in the sample prayer? Thy kingdom come, not just help me survive the end. Uh, the, the ultimate goal is not surviving the end as a physical human being, but being changed into immortality and to live forever. So he says, arise and shine. Well, arise could mean 
resurrection. Arise can also mean get off your duff, like it says there in Isaiah 52.1. So, the term in itself does not necessarily speak of the resurrection here. The shine might. uh, My margin says, be enlightened for your light comes. Well, we hope to shine in glory at some point. So, we use this expression, don't we? Rise and shine. I wonder if this is where it came from. Probably so. For your light <coughs> is come. Who is our light? That would be Christ, and He's coming. Now, yes, we know Zechariah 2, and some of those passages indicate that He is coming to be with the church and to help finish the end-time work, whether He comes visibly or only in spirit or however is entirely up to Him and subject to speculation on our part, perhaps. But we know that He is coming uh, to resurrect the first fruits, to take them to His Father's throne and marry them as atonement pictures. Have a year's honeymoon as Deuteronomy requires without war, and then come and subdue the earth. So I think that <clears throat> this may be the transition and most of the rest of the books of Isaiah indeed show the context of the kingdom of God with some, somewhat a flashback. And the glory of the eternal is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. Now that will still be covering the earth at the time of the first resurrection. That would be at the end of the tribulation, the three and a half years. And that is followed by the seven last plagues, as Matthew 24 says, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the day of the Lord, uh, the specific time of the seven last plagues and that year begins to occur at that time. So even though the church is raptured, you know, in a way it's kind of like that, isn't it? I mean, rapture isn't in the Bible, and the the, the Protestants think they're just going to be whisked away suddenly whether they're driving their cars or whatever they're doing. But the resurrection and rising in the air is, is very similar. So what Satan has done is counterfeited the true resurrection and what happens with the rapture theory. So it's It's not like there's not a certain element of truth in it. It's just twisted out of context somewhat and and doesn't fit the Scriptures, but it's still that type of a movement. Uh, And the Gentiles shall come to Zion, I I think is the better translation. I believe I looked that up once. It says, to your light. But we'll be at that point uh, when we return with the new heavens and the new earth, with Christ and the Father, the Gentiles then will come to that light and it will be at Zion and Jerusalem is where it will be because that's where the headquarters of the universe will be set up. Uh, I'm referring here to Revelation 21. And kings to the brightness of your rising. So they're going to recognize something very, very important is happening and they will begin to start moving in that direction. Lift up your eyes round about and see. All they gather themselves together. They come to you. Your son shall come from far and your daughter shall be nursed at your side. I find nothing 
in any of the passages about the end time work that there will be a great gathering of the Gentiles or the peoples of the earth. God is going to simply gather a remnant of those who have been called out prior to the return of Christ to, to finish the end time work. But no great movement of repentance is indicated in any passage about the end time and the end time work that I know of at all. So I think we're looking at something that's on the other side of that uh, when people will start responding in huge numbers. Remember that uh, the whole world will worship the beast. The whole world, except for a very few of the very elect, whoever they may be. And they're not going to leave that new world order because it will not be deposed, it will not be proven false until the two witnesses are resurrected in the streets of Jerusalem and uh, Christ returns. Then they'll see that the whole thing was upside down and backward. So great numbers of people are not going to start coming to God's people any time before the kingdom of God is established on the earth at the end of the day of the Lord or that year of the seven last plagues. And that's when we can anticipate that our sons and our daughters will come. Uh, God will perhaps see them through the, through the uh, tribulation and they would be gathered. Or if some are allowed to die, they would come in the great white throne judgment. But uh, it is this generation he's working with that he says won't die out. And we, we read right, just in uh, verse 21 of chapter 59 last night that this would go on with our seed and our seed's seed. Uh, so that if it's talking to the end time people there, those doing the work of God, he's talking about making a, a future covenant here of perpetuity of our children or perpetuation of our families. And that would have to be on into the millennium because you're right on the eve of the millennium starting here in the end time work. So he's <clears throat> reiterating what he said above right here. Then you shall see and flow together, and your heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted to you. The forces of the Gentiles shall come to you. Uh, your heart shall fear. Fear what? These people are coming in peace. The fear will be of God Almighty. The fear that comes from realizing that all these promises He's made throughout the Bible suddenly have come true. And our awe of our God is going to increase. And I hope that that sense of awe and fear would then remain forevermore in us throughout eternity so that we would never depart from God or rebel against Him as Satan did. And that's why he's trying us and testing us now to determine our attitudes and determine our approach and our endurance, our capacity to take all kinds of difficulty without turning against Him or blaming Him or becoming bitter because we don't have what we might want in this life now. See, there are reasons things are the way that they are. There are reasons for health problems. There are reasons for 
living single. There are reasons for financial hardships. There are reasons for a lot of things. We have to be tried and tested and checked to see how faithful we are to God in heaven. And then when we see, come through it on the other side and see all these things happen, then our awe and fear and respect for God is going to enlarge. You know, if you see all these millions, hundreds of millions of people suddenly beginning to come to Jerusalem and to worship God, what an incredibly different view that is than what we see of the world today, where you can hardly get people to give God the time of day. And you see that reversed and those people coming, what an awesome thing that's going to be. That'll be something beyond any experience we have ever even dreamed of. The abundance of the sea. Well, the sea in prophecy represents the people. The peoples of the earth. All the Gentile nations shall be converted to you. So converted means that they're turning to God. They're not just respecting uh, the church for a small end-time work here. This is, this is a much bigger picture than that. The forces of the Gentiles shall come to you. What is that forces word? What is that word right there? Uh, my number won't find it. Wealth, okay. I'm getting blind. I'm looking for that little three. <clears throat> the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover you. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall fo- show forth the praises of the Eternal. So this is a conversion of these Gentile peoples on a large scale. That cannot be before the millennium. All the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance of my altar on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. So that's the holy city he's talking about there, not just physical Jerusalem restored, but this is speaking of a much bigger more resplendent, glorious thing. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? Just They're like, uh, remember stories about the homing pigeons, how they would literally darken the skies back east when the pilgrims first came over? I think that's what he's talking about. All these people are going to be coming in so much abundance. It's it's like the, the doves or the pigeons that, Covered the skies. <clears throat> Surely the coast shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your sons from far, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Eternal your God, and to the Holy One of Israel, because He has glorified you. There's a, a resurrection type word there. He's glorified you. It's not just speaking of, of blessing, but glorification. And it'll come to the name of the eternal God. And it does make it quite clear in Revelation 21 that the Father and the Son are going to be dwelling here at that time. And we'll read about the sun and the moon here in a little bit too. So uh, this, this is a parallel chapter, I, I, I pretty well believe, 
to Revelation 21. <clears throat> and the sons of strangers shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. Uh, it says they'll come and worship at our feet, doesn't it? Speaking of the time that we become kings and priests in the kingdom of God. Uh, well, that sounds pretty much what Isaiah is describing here. Their king shall minister to you or serve you. For in my wrath I smote you, but in my favor have I had mercy on you. So he's going to turn his face back to us. He's going to begin the restoration. And hopefully we'll see this through until the resurrection. And then help set up the real kingdom of God on the earth. Not just a microcosm or small example of it. Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut by day or night. There again, Revelation 21 sounds just like this. That men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. Doesn't it say there in Zechariah 14 that uh, all the peoples, the nations, will come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles? But if Egypt come not up, they'll receive no rain. So, they'll all be coming, and if anybody refuses, they'll perish. If they don't repent, when they don't get any rain, uh, pretty soon they won't have anything to eat. And if they don't repent and come, they will perish. It's that simple. I think when they get a little thirsty, they'll start saying, where's the feast? Or, where's the feast? <laughs> The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the fir tree, the pine, the box together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. Not just restored, but this is speaking of the glory of God. The sons also of them that afflicted you shall come bending to you. Well, bending their knees, bowing their heads, worshiping in our feet. That won't happen until the millennium. And they that despised you shall bow themselves down at the soles of your feet. It does say there at the end of Malachi that the wicked will be ashes under the soles of our feet. So those who repent uh, will bow to your feet. And they shall call you <clears throat> the city of the eternal, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Well, what does he call it there in Revelation 21? The holy city. I'll show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Let's go back and just tie that in because this, this uh, comes together that way. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 21. This is speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. There came to me one of the seven angels who had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. See, the seven last plagues occur over a one-year period uh, after the tribulation is over. After the tribulation of those days, Christ takes his bride, marries her, has the year's honeymoon without war, and to cheer up his wife, get the marriage established. Then he comes back, and one of the angels that just poured out the seven last plagues is there. And talk with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he showed me holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God having the glory of God, and her was, light was like a stone most precious, and so on. So, 
he likens the heavenly Jerusalem coming down to the bride. He says that that is the bride. So back here in Isaiah 60, he says, They will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So we will be called the Holy City, one of our names, 144,000. So this has got to be speaking of that time. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through you, the truth of God is going to be hated, despised, from the beginning of the tribulation for sure, on through, until they're resurrected, and then the seven last plagues come. But you've been forsaken and hated. Now we are, we're not really hated yet. We're not even really known, are we? I mean, there are people here and there that may hate us, but you said who? They don't even know who Herbert Armstrong was anymore. 25 years ago since he died. So people are almost middle age and never heard of him. So the church, as it was then, is not despised or hated. Well, when are we going to get hated? We're going to get hated when God makes a separation and protects His people and puts a wall of fire around them and they build His temple. Uh, and then, when the tribulation starts, the whole world is going to learn to hate God's people. So this is yet future as well, a time when we've been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through you or to you. I will make you an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. That occurs at the time of the resurrection. Uh, we're, we're only a generation now that's old, weak, sick, and dying, aren't we? So you can't say this of us now. You also shall suck the milk of the Gentiles and shall suck the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Eternal, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So the Gentiles and all of their goods and so on will be totally against the remnant of God's people up until the time that Christ returns with His bride and then the glory of the Gentiles will come. But not until then because they'll all be worshiping the beast and they'll hate God's people. So this can't be end time at all. For brass I will bring gold, and for iron I will bring silver, and for wood brass, and for stones iron. I will also make your officers peace, and your exactors righteousness. The only thing that will be chasing us is peace and righteousness. Wouldn't that be nice? Instead of bill collectors and, and uh, you know, whoever else. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, wasting nor destruction within your borders. No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. Again, Matthew or Revelation 21. Uh, but you shall call your walls salvation, <clears throat> and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the eternal shall be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. The sun shall no more go down, neither shall the moon withdraw itself or go into uh, a dark period. For the eternal shall be your everlasting light, 
and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Uh, all right, back in Revelation 21. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, verse 23, to shine in it, for the glory of the God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth to bring their glory and honor into it. The gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and there shall bring, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations to it. Uh, well, verse 22 I in, intended to include, And I saw no temple therein, for the eternal God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. So the Father and the Son will be there in the new Jerusalem when it comes down, and they will light it, and the Gentiles will come to it. So Isaiah 60 is a, an early writing of what John saw and wrote in Revelation 21. For the eternal shall be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. No more pain, no more death, no more tears, no more sorrow. Your people also shall be all righteous. Now, that doesn't occur even in the end time work. Because a remnant will come and do God's work. And then there will be a, another separation at the time the abomination is set up and you flee and hope that you're worthy to escape at that time. So there'll be another culling at that point. And then when the resurrection occurs is the final cull. You either rise or you don't. One of the two. So there are several culling processes that happen between now and the time that Christ returns. But this is speaking of a time when our mourning will be over, be ended. There will be no more opportunity for that. No more wondering, will I make it, will I not? No more dreams about other people rising and you can't jump off the ground. Uh, quite a few people over the years in the church have had that dream. That's a scary one. Your people also shall be all righteous. And we won't be that until we're changed. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation or people. I, the Eternal, will hasten it in his time. So that's a time not when the earth is being decimated of population, but a time when it turns around and the population is again growing and increasing and repopulating the earth. So I think it should be quite clear that Isaiah 60 is, is looking beyond where we are today. Let's see that continue in chapter 61. <clears throat> the Spirit of the Eternal God is upon me, because the Eternal has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. There is, I think, as much hope, as much inspiration in the book of Isaiah as in any other book of the Bible. It's just, it's just loaded with it. And here he just gave us in chapter 60 an insight into some of the most inspiring writing in the Bible. 
uh, written almost exactly the same as Revelation 21, and how more inspiring can you get than Revelation 21? The bride coming in her glory with Christ and the Father and the Son coming to dwell on the earth and to bring peace and happiness and joy. So what he's saying here is that, that God laid upon him the ability, the attitude, the capacity to bring these good tidings to those who are meek. They don't mean anything unless you're meek and humble and obedient to God. To us, they have great meaning if we're that way, but they don't have any, any meaning to the proud and the haughty and the arrogant and uh, that kind of people because those aren't the ones that are obeying God and it doesn't pertain to them. To bind up the brokenhearted. Now, we can get frustrated, we can get discouraged, but... Boy, you come and read these scriptures and it'll help snap you out of those attitudes if you get in them occasionally. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Well, we are captives in this human frame, in this human sphere and nature. And he's telling us here that we can be freed from that. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump when we're changed. The opening of the prison to them that are bound. And certainly I feel bound, earthbound, and human-bound, and bound to the chains of human thinking, which is uh, destructive. So he says, he was also sent to proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal. Uh, I, I believe that is the year of the resurrection, the year of him marrying his bride and having his honeymoon with her, the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Now, he is going to accept his bride and take her for the honeymoon, and at the same time, he's going to start pouring out the seven last plagues on the earth. So it is a time that is acceptable to God for the bride of his son but it's also a time of great vengeance and punishment for the wicked to point to them that mourn in Zion to give to them beauty for ashes instead of ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the eternal, that he might be glorified. Well, when does all our mourning turn into joy? When does the heaviness disappear and praise be there forevermore? And beauty for ash. And where is the place of safety? Where is the bride going to be? In Zion. So that's where uh, the setting of this is. That's where we'll be when changed, uh, except for those who are the dead in Christ, who are scattered in graves all over the earth. But... For the ones who are alive and remain, uh, that's where they will be. I think those who repent during the Great Tribulation probably will all be dead by then. Because if they stand up against the beast, uh, they'll be martyred. But Zechariah indicates, I think in, is it 11, that about a third, 30%, uh, will repent in Tribulation. Whether they live or not physically is another matter. They may repent and turn to God, start keeping the Sabbath and obeying God, and then be killed. And that's fine, because they'll be in the resurrection just a short while later. 
it's not a big deal. I mean, if they're about to shoot you, I suppose it's a big deal. But Or pull your fingernails out, it's an even bigger deal. But let's see if we can avoid that, shall we? And they shall build the old wastes, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. So, this ties together with other scriptures we know of in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 9 and Zechariah 12 and Jeremiah 33 and Isaiah 41 and on and on, where it talks about uh, the waste places of, of generations. So, uh, I think that will start with Jerusalem, but even Jerusalem, once built during the 70 weeks there in Daniel 9, is again going to be uh, desolated, the abomination set up there. So the real permanent uh, building of the ancient promised land and of the places on the earth is going to be during the beginning of the millennium. And strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the eternal. Well, what does it tell us in Revelation? We'll be kings and priests forever. Men shall call you the ministers or the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall you boast yourselves. That doesn't mean we're suddenly going to become pride and boastful. Uh, that isn't the meaning here. But you'll uh, bask in the glory that has been given. And it will not be a vain or prideful thing. Uh, once you're made God, God is God. The Son is God. And they appreciate their glory. And they want us continually to give them praise, honor, and glory, don't they? Where is my honor? Where is my praise? Where is my glory? They deserve it. Now, if we get proud and vain and boastful, for what? We're human beings that are going to die. We have nothing to boast about. If they were to boast, they have plenty to boast about. Now, does not God boast to Job? Different places throughout the Bible. But it's not vain glory. It's not pride. It's just a fact. I am what I am, he says. I do this and I do that. Now, if you hear some guy in a bar saying he does this and he does that, that's vanity and ego. And most of it he probably never has done anyway. And if he did, he should be ashamed of it. But the things God talks about really are. So it's not vainglory or boasting. It's just the facts. You should worship me who does and has created the earth and done every good thing that ever was done. So when we are made God, there will be a switch kind of that's flipped and we can tell the Gentiles how great we are. And it will be a fact. It won't be vanity. Now if I, you tell me how great you are, I tell you how great I am, we look at each other and say, yeah, Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I get it. But it won't be vanity then. It'll be the truth. And the nations will come and worship before our feet. Now, we're not worthy of worship here in the end time. Even as the end time work of the church, there's no reason anyone would worship us. 
And we should not allow it, regardless of how much God blesses His remnant people at the end. Not yet worthy of worship whatsoever, but then we will be. So in their glory, that time shall you boast yourselves, not in vanity, but this is the truth. And if you do what we did, and you're glorified someday, then you can be this way too. See, it'll be used for good purpose, not for vanity. For your shame that we will have gone through, you shall have double blessing, is the inference. And for confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be to them. Not temporary, but everlasting. For I, the Eternal, love judgment, good judgment, honest judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the seed which the Eternal has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Eternal. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So, he's speaking here of the bride of Christ, and how she is adorned, and comes down, as it says there in Revelation 21. For as the earth brings forth her bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the eternal God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth, before all the nations. Now that can only be millennial when righteousness springs forth before all the nations. There's a dire warning prior to that that the witnesses give to the world and plagues and all, all manner of death and destruction. And then there's the seven last plagues. I mean, the... the The future of the earth in the short term is going to be very dire indeed and get worse and worse and worse until all flesh would be dead except he cut it short in righteousness. So this scripture is not talking still about the end time. This is talking about when God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth in front of all the nations. That will only be when the Father and the Son are here ruling from the New Jerusalem and bringing peace, happiness, and those, the waters flowing out from under the throne and the trees there to heal the nations. That's when righteousness will spring forth. Meantime, it's just unrepentant, bitter, stiff-necked, hard-headed, non-repentance of the peoples of the earth until almost all of them die, and everyone would, except for intervention from God. And then it's going to turn around and everlasting righteousness will spring forth before all nations. So we have a a look into the beginning of the kingdom of God here is what we have. What we're working for right now, the work that God has called us to do, to go out into the desert and prepare a place and 
and a highway, make a place for God's people and a way for them to come, place for them to come, and then the building of the temple, if we are so blessed as to be part of it, and Jerusalem, and then hopefully to be able to flee to Zion and weather the storm there until the resurrection. So he's, he's bringing us through the end time work, and then he gives us a glimpse of what is beyond that. So it puts a perfect capstone on this whole section here about the end time work and the reward of those uh, who are faithful and endure to the end and do God's work to the end. Those, but when he comes back, he finds so doing, as it says there in Luke. Not those who have given up, not those that have quit, not those who have gotten a bad attitude or become bitter, but those who are still moving forward, doing the will of God. So, a little bit early, I guess, but I think that's a a good fitting place to, to make a short Bible study. We may be getting weary of every night anyway. We've only got two more nights and uh, and then a, a holy day to come and, and then you can go right back to sinning. <laughs>